0: Run podcast. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Black Cats Run podcast. If you are enjoying the pod, you can follow us on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We have content on there supporting this and other episodes that we hope you will find engaging and helpful. You can also reach out to us there, let us know what you're enjoying, or if there's other topics that that you would like to see covered on the podcast today special episode about the mysteries of lactate threshold and what we think the elites are not disclosing about their training or maybe that we're just too busy squawking to hear let's get into today's episode This is an emergency broadcast of the Black Cats Run podcast. A light bulb just exploded in my head today when I was eating lunch. And this has been churning and churning and churning since. And I've put the pieces, the fragments of that exploding light bulb moment back together. And I bring to you now this key concept that I think will significantly alter the way most of us try to understand what we're trying to accomplish when we're training for endurance sport disciplines, whether it's on the bike, whether it's running, or whether it's some other context. I think this is fundamental. I think this is ubiquitous, and I think it has overwhelmingly been presented with a reprehensible level of inaccuracy and confusion and misleading dialogue, I suppose, for lack of a better word, about this stuff. If you ever watched James and the Giant Peach? There's a scene in the movie when James and his insect friends are inside of the peach and they're eating from the peach, the walls of the peach. And it's one of those things when I watched that when I was a kid, it was just, wow, utterly sublime moment. And I think about that every time it's peach season here in New England. We get them from the orchard. It's such a small window of the year, but it's such a transcendent experience. And when I eat them, I think about that moment. Sometimes you have these moments of clarity when things just sort of slide into an alignment that you hadn't quite seen them before and it is that same kind of feeling for some strange reason that makes me feel like I am James inside of this incredible flying fruit airship and just soaking in that moment of clarity. And it's just so satisfying because something that maybe you have thought about a particular way or, in this case, you've tried to make sense of from a particular way by applying all of the understandings that have been put out there, and you see again and again and again, and they've never quite added up, and you've tried to force them to make sense, and you've tried to tell it back to yourself again and again and again, and then finally, something new comes into place, and you see it totally differently. It's a paradigm shift, and that paradigm shift feels like what I imagine it must have been like to be James, to be inside of that peach eating the most incredible single piece of fruit that ever could have been imagined by Roald Dahl writing in his garden shed in his backyard. I bring to you now this juicy peach of wisdom, or at least a slice of something that I hope will be thought-provoking or help us all think about this in a little bit of a different way maybe than we have before. Some of you maybe have already seen this and will be underwhelmed, but I've had so many conversations with so many different people about this topic over time, I mean over years and years and years now, that I feel that this is broadly representative of the understanding, and what I'm going to begin to suggest here is actually the misunderstanding, that is so highly prevalent and is really limiting our ability to develop as individual athletes and also as coaches, because it's also a part of the fabric of not only how do we train, it's also how are we thinking about training What is that metacognitive space? And then it additionally is reflective of how do we try to communicate to others about training? And I did a little bit of research here this evening before stepping up to record this podcast because I wanted to be sure that I wasn't hallucinating this or something that I had just sort of imagined in my mind that there was this misspeaking because it just suddenly became clear that we've been talking about this so wrong in so many different spaces again and again and again, and everything just suddenly seems so inane from this point of view that it just seemed inconceivable to me that this could have possibly been correct and that this could have possibly been what was really been going on in terms of the dialogue about this stuff. And I looked at some stuff and I started doing some research into this to try to confirm and see if this is the case. And it's the case. Uh, And I hope that you will find this as satisfying and rewarding as I do and that it will feel like that elevating experience of taking up a piece of fresh seasonal orchard fruit and just like transporting you to a higher level of satisfied understanding. What I want to talk about is thresholds. Maybe what people call that FTP, functional threshold power. Threshold training is sometimes used as a generic term for runners. Lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, aerobic threshold. We could go on and on and on, and we'll get to some of the additional terms later because it's the proliferation of terminology that forms a part of this problem. We live in a world, though, where athletes parrot training concepts. It becomes the in-behavior. It becomes the sort of thing we conform to. We all parrot things that we don't understand in order to gain the social badge value that comes from being able to parrot them. And It's the facsimile of intelligence rather than the actual carrying of an understanding. And I want to try to move us past that parroting phase in this episode and instead want to shift it to a level of, I get it now, try to give and impart to you that same sort of sense of aha moment that I had today when I was eating lunch. A lot of elite athletes don't actually understand training, and this is reflected by the fact that it's very difficult to make a transition from being an elite athlete to being a coach. Now, part of that is when you've had a relatively, I emphasize relatively, relatively easy experience in terms of getting good at a sport, it's hard to relate to the experience of people who might be struggling to a much greater degree than you. But I also think it's the case that for elite athletes, there really isn't much of a need to understand. You can get yourself in a situation, especially if you're good enough, where you're going to get the kind of support and guidance and intervention where you almost can sort of default to sort of being marionetted along. And you don't need to really apply a critical level of understanding in order to develop And become successful because somebody else is just telling you exactly what to do and whether or not you understand the purpose of what you're trying to do or how it's supposed to work doesn't matter. But people are going to ask you about what you're doing and they're going to ask you to explain because it's in our nature to look at people who are doing the best in the areas that we aspire ourselves to improve at or become at least moderately competent at. And wonder, well, what are you doing? You know, is there something here that I'm not doing? I see you're better than me, maybe borderline infinitely better than me when we look at some of the very, very best people in these sports and we compare it to the rest of us mere mortals. And I think it becomes clear pretty quickly that, you know, that puts you in a tricky situation because you need to say something to sort of like engage your audience. And I think that's where that parroting behavior comes in, is that people just sort of default to like being in a job interview, okay, here are the important things to say, here are the right messages to share, I'm going to put these words out here, but we don't necessarily have a key understanding of what we're talking about. And it's very easy to start saying things that sound interchangeable to the layperson, but actually lead to this domino effect of people not understanding. And it's not just the athletes who are parodying this stuff. A lot of coaches, including coaches of elite athletes, don't understand this stuff. And I'm not saying that to, you know, blow smoke here. I think it's genuinely the case, and it's reflected in the evidence of the stuff that's written and published and talked about. And I think that's why in this podcast, you know, one of our goals is to ask questions rather than just assert absolute truths. Because asking questions and coming from the perspective of our knowledge is inherently limited, I think is actually a more powerful perspective than to come from the perspective of, well, I'm an expert and therefore I'm going to assert the truths. And then it's other people's responsibility to sort of enact those or else underperform as a consequence of failing to enact them. But that parroting, Right, of saying these things. You know, you see this with kids, you know, when they'll talk to each other about things that they don't really understand, but they heard somebody else say it, and then they start talking about it, and you might be observing, and you're like, Well, I know what this is, and none of you know what you're talking about, but they're engaging in that social behavior because it has badge value in that context. In some way, it's creating this semblance of credibility, it's like recess. Uh, you know or playground level con artistry or something it's really fascinating and it's a huge problem that we do this you know you could think about the context of how we circulate things that are inaccurate because we you know lack the sort of like skepticism or you know cynicism in looking at things to question you know well this seems too good to be true or this seems so improbable is this really the case right but that sense of like oh my goodness i can't believe this and we have this knee-jerk reaction to just take something and push it back out there. But where is our process of trying to evaluate or think through that stuff? And it might be that it's a product of how we learn, which is to be able to parrot the knowledge sufficient enough to be approved or get that you know stamp of acceptance, that seal of approval through something like maybe a standardized multiple choice test because that's what we decided as a culture uh, intelligence was and, and how that could be quantified or evaluated over a century ago. So why exactly is this a huge problem though? Um, and what does it have to do with thresholds of training? Well, first of all, it's a huge problem because it is obfuscating the reality of what's going on. And we're creating so much white noise about training things because it's socially valuable in a the bubble of athlete social culture to sound knowledgeable and competent because the top performers do that and it is a natural behavior to want to try to gain that same kind of status. and you know you see people circulating advice. and I suppose, right? the emperor wears no clothes. here I am. You know, a quarter of an hour into, you know, probably an hour plus of, you know, asserting some things that I think I now know about training and sharing those with people. But I think the way in which we try to talk about that stuff is important, qualifying and saying that, well, we're trying to understand. And a part of that is putting ideas out there so we can better ask more questions, but also trying to validate what we're saying. And I am going to try to do that here. I'm going to try to be persuasive, not coercive. I'm going to try to be persuasive. I'm going to try to make the case for what I'm saying. And then, you know, it's up to you to make the determination of whether or not you find that to be valuable or worth applying in your own context or whatever your own domain is around this stuff. And so that's the issue, though, is that when we generate white noise and we repeat things that we don't understand, it competes with the sort of reality of what's going on. And it becomes increasingly difficult to determine what is the information that we should really be settling on or focusing on as we try to understand our approach to sport. To be fair, I also think it's complicated because I think we don't always know that we don't know. You know, you can enter into a phase where you hear something and you think you've developed that understanding. Again, that comes back to the fact that I think parroting behavior is something that's really been, you know, celebrated and has been taught to us as knowledge. And I think to recognizing the limitations of being able to say back the things somebody else has said, you know, you first have to sort of question the value of that in and of itself. And then it's sort of this like matrix like moment, you know, red pill, blue pill moment where you can say to yourself, Wow, I guess you just start to see this everywhere that people are just unquestioningly taking things and and throwing them back. Um, I had somebody come up to me the other day and say, well, you know, you should play so-and-so in chess. I bet you play chess. I said, I don't play chess. Do you know how to play chess? I said, yes, I know how to play chess. I just don't really play chess. It's just not something I really enjoy. And I said, well, that's weird to me because you seem like a pretty smart guy. You know, I thought, smart people played chess. I said, well, I don't think the ability to play chess or be good at chess is a sign of intelligence. And they said, well, what about Magnus Cort Nielsen? Do you think he's intelligent? Isn't he a genius? I said, I think the only thing we can know about Magnus Court Nielsen is he apparently must be reasonably good at playing chess. But what's the transferable value of that? What's the significance of that outside of that context, I mean, Bobby Fischer, you know, had an incredible reputation as a chess player, and now he has an incredible reputation as thinking some pretty outrageous anti-Semitic things, which are really not consistent with being an intelligent person at all. So the way in which we evaluate this stuff and what we value as intelligence and understanding is also something we have to sort of navigate here. And if you can sort of cross that first barrier of understanding, I think it becomes easier to start peeling back the layers and you start to hear people saying things and then you can start to question or ask the question, you know, not in a harsh judgmental way, but in an authentic way of like, well, what does that mean? You know, how do you know that to be true? And oftentimes people don't know. It was like, well, I heard it. And that idea of being able to pull out discrete things, I hesitate to say facts, because a lot of times these things are inaccurate. But to pull out discrete pieces of information or, you know, supposed facts, that's not a form of intelligence. That's a form of like associative response. We're responding with things based on on that space that we are in in any given moment. And so that makes it difficult to develop these conversations. And that's a part of the why it's such a like, you know, fresh fruit in season, satisfying moment when you have things snap into focus in a new way. Because otherwise, you're sort of churning in that sea of like, I'm hearing what they're saying, I'm trying these different things, I'm trying to apply these understandings, and it's just not quite clicking. Something just doesn't quite add up. And we've talked about this in other episodes. if you listen to our How's Your Win series on the podcast, you know, we talk about the concept of the way a discipline culture around sport is influencing people to think and behave in certain ways about how we're trying to engage with this stuff. So this then transfers to thresholds, because thresholds are something that are really important to understand. It's a really useful conceptual tool to try to make sense of where should we be existing? Where does development occur? We had a really great top-secret guest episode with Amanda Black Ingersoll. a couple episodes back now, but we talked about that idea of there's a space in which good things happen, and that's sort of this zone of proximal development, and that that's not just a, you know, learning pedagogical classroom phenomena, but that's how we grow and develop as people in general, because everything we do is both cognitive and physiological at the same time, because the brain is a part of the body, the body is related to the brain, right? This is a whole unit, of function. And so thresholds are a part of this and it's a tool for understanding and it's a conceptual method. Okay. I would consider it to be a methodology to try to apply a perspective of what is and isn't effective in engaging with a obstacle or a set of adversities. And that threshold dictates to us or helps us define, well, this is the way we engage with that problem, such that when we return to that problem, we're going to find ourselves in a better position to engage with this. So if we can't define what these thresholds are, or if maybe we have defined them, because that's a part of what I want to suggest here, is I think we have defined them. And I think the issue is the issue of communication and this parroting culture and how it causes people who it's like, if I can understand these things, and I can signify that I understand thresholds, and I understand these complex sounding training concepts that are being used, and I hear them referenced by, you know, this elite over here and this elite over here, and that will sort of signify that I'm really a part of this in space, and I really get it, you know, and, and people will have respect or consideration for me. And it's it's worth, you know, having respect and consideration for people who have Knowledge that they can share with us that has value, right? But what happens when it becomes again so cluttered by parroting behavior that we can't really determine well what is the the real value, um, and and sort of not the value to this? I think if you have a very sort of guided approach where you're just like buying schedules online from coaches and you just sort of follow that in a relatively mindless manner, then maybe understanding these things isn't helpful to you. But I think that is also a matter of perspective and something that maybe there needs to be a little paradigm shift there, a little shaking of the tree in terms of that mentality, because you know you might be following something that doesn't actually work or doesn't make sense or is just going to maybe backfire or is applying too much strain and along in the wrong directions and might add up to getting injured. Because if we don't understand the language and the terminology, then we don't know what we're doing. And when we don't know what we're doing, that's a huge problem because we don't know what we're doing. And the implication of that is that we could be doing something that's totally ineffective and we would have no capacity to make that determination for ourselves. And I think it's important to be able to do that, even if you do ultimately choose to and i think for a lot of people it's very valuable to work with a coach but that doesn't mean that you should maintain some level of ignorance the opposite is true is the better you understand what you're doing the more effective it's going to be for me in coaching with people it's always so strange to see how often people just want a schedule and then that's that and i'm sort of like well the schedule really isn't that valuable the schedule is just sort of this starting point And then it's supposed to be something that facilitates conversation, reflection, and engagement over what are the ideas represented in the schedule? What are we trying to do? And key to that is an understanding of thresholds. And, you know, that word threshold, that's a vehicle for knowledge, like all words, right? Words are vehicles for ideas. And what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to put these on a scale. Now that we've framed, the problem and the sort of space that is making this an issue in the first place, the way we are engaging socially um, and behaviorally around talking about training, especially around training ideas that might be more complicated, like threshold, right? Something where we can sound really knowledgeable and expert if we have something to say about it, even if we don't really know what we're saying. We take advantage of our mutual ignorance because most of us won't be able to tell if What you're saying makes any sense anyway. So we sort of just play, you know, that game of blindfolded ping pong and pretend there's still, you know, a ball on the table when there isn't. So I want to put these on a scale and I'm going to post some stuff on the Instagram to go with this episode, which I think will be super helpful. So I encourage you to go over to that at Black Cats Run on Instagram so you can see these. And I think it will significantly uh, open up that level of understanding there's no such thing as you know visual learners that's that's a total myth but that doesn't mean that there's not value to being able to see something like this so we can understand how this stuff relates and i have some tangible specific data that i want to share lactate threshold and ftp and anaerobic threshold and aerobic threshold these are not all the same thing and people use them interchangeably and your understanding of those is going to radically alter in one direction or the other how you approach your training. And it's going to, in consequence, radically alter your experience to the point of making it an awesome area of growth and achievement and satisfaction on one extreme to making it so you give up and burn out and develop a sense of you know, incompetence and inability on the other hand. And that's not an exaggeration to say that that is how significance. The difference in these understandings are, so here's a quote from an article, um, or I guess a notes from a, a podcast. I'm not doing this to pick on this, but it's one of the things that I came up with when I was trying to research and say, okay, am I just imagining that everybody's saying this wrong, um, or or am I, you know, really realizing something more clearly for the first time, and um, this was a podcast from Scientific Triathlon that the intention was to clarify these thresholds. And here's uh, what the quote says, quote, the aerobic threshold measured in a blood lactate test is the same as the ventilatory threshold one measured in an RER, respiratory exchange ratio test. The lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold is the same as the ventilatory threshold two This is also roughly the same as the functional threshold, unquote. So, this is basically false. Now, yes, we can construct labels however we want, but what I want to communicate to you here is that this isn't the lactate threshold. Basically, this concept in cycling that FTP and lactate threshold are the same is total bogus, okay? It's total crap. That's not true. And this becomes really significant because people take their FTP and they equate that to lactate threshold. And then they try to do workouts by applying those FTP values and it doesn't work. Okay. It literally doesn't work because that's not physiologically correct. Okay. And this quote, is an example of this kind of thinking, right? That it's just using all these different terms and it's putting this out there, right? And if so you're in a position where you're like, I'm hearing all this stuff, I don't get it. I need to understand. And this is an example of something where, you know, it starts off and it looks like it has all the potential and it just falls into that rhetorical space of of becoming parroted gibberish. Um, and you know, no knock on the overall integrity of of the scientific triathlon stuff as, as a resource. I, I have no opinion about that overall to be frank, but I pulled just that one quote because I think it speaks to and is emblematic of the, the nature of, of the problem. Um, and we would, you know, give them credit and say, if, maybe if you had a conversation, um, with the author or authors, maybe they would, you know, have a clarification there, but, but that's a part of the point, right? Is that when we're talking with folks, um, about this stuff, we need to speak, correctly and accurately or else people are going to do things that just aren't going to work so i did a lactate threshold test today um i got inspired from a episode the other day looking back at that stuff and i'm like you know i'm going to get some more test strips and i'm going to replace the battery i had to replace the battery um in the lactate plus meter and i'm, I'm going to start looking at this stuff again and this was before i kind of had this epiphany which now that i've had this epiphany I'm way more amped up about trying to apply this stuff more consistently again than I was before that. It was just sort of on a whim of, well, you know, maybe we'll get some test strips and just sort of see what's going on, you know, what's what's my ftp actually right now. Um and now I realize I don't care what my ftp is and it's totally meaningless. So how did I change my mindset about this in the last, you know, 8 hours? So if we look at my data, okay, that's where we want to start. Now I've added this too and reposted uh in a sense these graphs um that I had posted a little while ago when I had talked about some of my own data as a reference point for some stuff. So this will look familiar, but you're going to see that what I've added here is a bright green line. And that's from January twenty-third of this year. I had a meeting that was canceled this afternoon. And I thought, well, what would be better to do during that? window of now available time and to go and test my lactate threshold. And I had also earlier in this in the day had that sort of breakthrough. So then I got really amped up to go and do this because I wanted to see um, if what I was starting to imagine really made sense. And so what inspired me, what inspired me to do this is I was taking a look at, again, um, this really interesting um, article by Marius Backen, uh website mariusbakken.com, 2ks in the last name. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize. Um, but Marius is a, a physician and in the early 2000s he had a personal best in the 5,000 of, I believe 1306. And he has an article um, where he talks about, you know, what's going on with Norwegian training, and the lactate stuff. And I had read that a while ago, and I was looking for something to read when I was eating lunch today. And I was I'll go back and maybe look at that article again. And so in looking at it, I found this other shorter write-up from March of 2000, just called A Practical Guide. Subtitle is From Theory to Workouts. And as I was reading this, um, there's a quote in this article that stood out to me and really gave me pause. So for context, in general, this little short write-up is talking about how the Norwegian athletes, they need to take advantage of their access to lactate meters uh, in order to train like the Kenyans and even be better at the Kenyan training methods than the Kenyans because he talks about how the Kenyans train really effectively um, and through... In- intuitive means which i think raises its own interesting question about how do we learn how to train how do we learn how to exert ourselves during physical exercise but says that you know we can use this tool to measure lactate to figure out lactate threshold so we can emulate and you know part of this whole thing coming out of the 90s i think and and the late 80s of this real preoccupation with how are these athletes from Kenya is so incredible and so much better. And I think the explanation is probably more complicated than just, you know, well, they have a intuitive capacity to train at lactate threshold, right? Training is more complex um, than any one single factor. But there's a line in here where it says, contact a physio- uh, physiology lab where you can get an accurate lactate threshold test. I'm thinking, well, I know how to do those and I've done those. Okay. And I didn't really feel that they led to anything in particular besides sort of maybe trying to get a sense of where my FTP at four millimoles of lactate was. Then it says, goes on to say, the value you should focus on is the value you get when you start accumulating lactic acid. And I looked at that and I thought, that's so frustrating. What does that mean? accumulating lactic acid. And up until lunch, I was still thinking about, well, most people, your FTP is around four millimoles, and then your aerobic threshold is around two millimoles. So I'm I'm thinking about this, accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. So then I go to YouTube, and then I go to Steven Seiler's thing, and I look up his six-minute video or whatever about the Norwegian uh, training zones and the three zones, and then he talks about there being sort of five subjective zones. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking about that. And then he goes to the second part, a very short video. I recommend you take a look at it. If you just look up Steven Seiler, Norwegian training zones, it will come right up on YouTube. And he shows this chart. And the chart shows some lactate levels for a group of Nordic skiers. And I'm looking at it, and he's talking about what's going on there, and I had watched this video before, and it's one of those things where sometimes you have to look at stuff more than once in order to really make a connection or let that you know light bulb go off so suddenly that it just explodes in your head. And I'm looking at this, and it just sort of suddenly sunk into me what he was showing. He's showing that these athletes have a lactate threshold of like 0.6, 0.6 or 0.8 millimoles. And he says, how do you know, assign these athletes to work at a millimole value of two or three or four would just be insanely inappropriate. So I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, well, okay, I guess these people are like elite athletes. And then in the Marius article of practical guide, there's a reference to, you know, there's even some Kenyans um, who have lactate thresholds as low as two millimoles? So I'm thinking, okay. So I guess maybe there's this variance, but that's really if you're a really special person, you get to have that, you know. And for the rest of us, that's not what it is. But then I'm thinking, like, you know, it is just so uncomfortable for me to train at four millimole. I can't do that for any extended, you know, you know, length of aerobic interval. I can't FTP along, um, so to speak, for any great length of time. Um, and then I'm thinking you know you know even two millimoles can be hard and I had told the story or the anecdote um I don't know if it's maybe somewhere in between story and anecdote let's not make it more grandiose than it really was but I shared about when I got my lactate meter at the end of 2018 I sort of went off on this six to eight week Odyssey of designing elaborate insane workouts for myself on the wahoo kicker using erg mode targeting that, two millimole um, intensity. And it occurred to me in this single moment that I wasn't actually training at two millimole. I wasn't training at that threshold. I was training at this wattage that on that one day, and I had done that one test, correlated to that. The purpose of testing your lactate threshold isn't to figure out how many watts you can do at lactate threshold. That's going to change from day to day. And we've talked about that variability in in threshold on this podcast already. But it's going to change day to day. But what doesn't change is the point at which you start to accumulate more and more lactate. Okay, so if we go back to my data here and what you see with that green line is you see it goes along and, you know, it trundles along and then it gets to about 250, 260, it goes up and then there's sort of, you know, moderate growth and then you get closer towards 280, 300 and then it really starts to climb. You know, it fits right in kind of the mid range of, you know, most of my data. And then I also throw in the heart rate results on the test just to have that as a reference see that also seems consistent. I actually had a pretty low heart rate um, here, which in the past I would have been like, what does this mean? This test is invalid. But now I'm having a totally different thought process about this. So Then I isolated um, just this new line and I put it against um, the very first lactate test that I did and the most recent one previous to now, which, you know that was in November of 2020. Now it's January of 2023. So quite a while. And we see this um, shows about in the middle. Interestingly, um, and I started testing the lactate all the way at the beginning of my steps, which I had sort of been passing on that um, in some of these other tests in order to just save test strips because I'm like, well, I kind of already know I don't need that. And I still didn't need to do that, but I just, look, I haven't done this in a while. I want to sort of see it through all the way from the start. And you know, you can see more clearly what happens that I get to about uh, 240, between 240 and 260 watts. And that's when it starts to go up. And then it sort of goes from one step to just two to just 2.2. And then it jumps up to 3.8. And then you can see the heart rate stuff there too. And I thought about that quote, after I did this test. And I said, well, I want to figure out where is my lactate accumulating? Because I was looking at my brother's data, Camden um, was, as I've said on the pod before, is an exceptional cyclist uh, looking at the, the test data from his test in uh, the end of 2018 when we had first, again, gotten this lactate meter. And I noticed that he sort of goes along and goes along and goes along. And it's basically like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. And then it just shifts and it just starts to go up. And by the time he gets to two millimole, by the time he gets to four millimole, it's just, it's already been going up. And I said, well, okay, his lactate threshold, it's not four and it's not two. It's like closer to one. I'm thinking, well, he's a pretty good athlete. You know, he's pretty close to, you know, physiologically elite if, you know, frankly, probably, you know, objectively physiologically elite to be fair. I'm thinking, well, so he kind of fits into that category. And then I'm looking at, you know, my data and I'm thinking about this and I'm saying, you know, what does this really look like? Is that actually what's going on here? Am I really at this other level? And I said, no. Like, my lactate threshold is less than two millimoles. It is less than two millimoles. And so if I do an FTP test which is supposed to be this thing, which my FTP, my steady watts and races, for whatever reason, is very close to what these tests will say my four millimole value is. But that's not lactate threshold. And then I looked up this YouTube video. I said, what, did, what does Jack Daniels say about this? Right? Um, we don't have anything against Jack Daniels on the podcast. right? We've just talked about how something like the Daniels running formula as a system Right, for teaching about training can be sort of challenging to use and the limitations of that kind of an approach, right? But so I looked at that and he has this nice little three minute video. He draws the graph and then it starts going up and he says, Look, when it stops being level and it starts going up, that's the lactate threshold. So I said, Okay, I look at the data and it's clear to me that my lactate threshold is somewhere around maybe 1 to 1.6 millimoles of lactate. That's where I hit my lactate threshold. And if you look on the Instagram, you can see I zoomed in just on that phase. And I sort of brought the, I adjusted for the differences in watts and just said step to step to step. And what you see is at the point when it starts to go up across all of them, when you bring them into alignment, they all are going up After about one to one point six, and the trend is very clear when you look at that. And I, you can see, I even posted a line um, with some uh, colored trend lines, and you'll see that that's the point when those lines they all start to climb up. They go from sort of like you know dolphin kicking along, if you will, so being you know relatively level to with slight you know fluctuations along a tenth or so of lactate millimole, and then. They all start climbing. So what's the point at which my lactate is accumulating? It's at less than two millimoles. That's where my lactate threshold is. And I'd be tempted to look at that in and of itself and say, well, I guess I just suck as an athlete. But I've also now just looked at this other evidence from these other sources that is suggesting the opposite. And I think maybe what my dad is saying is that, well, maybe this is one of those things where, you know, it doesn't, there's not really like... A direct correlation between having a really low, um, you know, lactate threshold that you're somehow this incredible elite performer, but it might just be the case that, as is so often, the turns out to be true of these things that there's just individual variance and these aggregate numbers of, you know, saying, you know, well, four millimoles this and two millimoles that—that's not really useful or helpful. So if you look at the next diagram here. What I've done is I've just listed all of the different terms and maybe not all the different terms, but a number of the different terms that get thrown around and used, I feel, kind of interchangeably and are perpetuated through this, you know, parroting like behavior as people talk about this thing that maybe we think we understand because we've heard a statement and we can repeat the statement, but we don't actually have a functional level of understanding. Like we can't actually take the knowledge and do anything with that. And you know I'm you know offering up the fact that I'm realizing now that I had a really constrained limitation in my perspective on this relative to myself, and that this is now expanding my perspective on you know what the right understanding is relative to others in general. And then I've also on this graph, I've just put a blue ring uh, circled approximately right where that sort of standard benchmark is for this. So in the past, when I would do this test, that's what I would look at. I would look at where I was at four and I'd say, okay, that's my FTP. And then I would say, well, my zones must be based on that. And now I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, that's so dumb. Did I just like make that up? But, you know, I went back and I looked at, you know, reference materials, um, you know, in different places, you know, online and, and whatnot. And no, it's clear that like, this is sort of the suggested, uh, process, right? So and if you look at the you know Marius article at the next slide here, um, I put a little uh, blue bracket around, and I also overlaid uh, sort of a dotted turquoise line to kind of show what my graph might look like if it was like a little more even out. So according to that model, um, you know he's suggesting that you know the Norwegian concept is to train at you know two point five to three millimoles of lactate, but for me you see that that's significantly above the level at which my lactate starts to accumulate. So we have this suggestion or this guidance of how you know I should be exerting myself, but it's also not at the point where lactate starts to accumulate. So that's also well above the lactate threshold. And so the one of the sort of shifts in my mindset here is that we're not trying to test the watts. We're trying to test the lactate and we're just leveraging this idea of a constant incremental increase in the watts to try to find the point at which the lactate goes up. So then you know that's the level of exertion that is your lactate threshold. And it's a significant but also very subtle change in feel where it goes from feeling ridiculously easy to feeling like there's probably some sort of a limit to this, but I probably wouldn't get that to that for quite a while. And another mindset issue I would have about this stuff. In the past, I would look at this and I'd look at the heart rate or I'd be like, I can't believe my FTP is that bad, you know, blah, 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 right? All that kind of self-questioning, self-doubting stuff that I think is common to people when they're feeling motivated or, or want to sort of give themselves some positive, positive reinforcement about their athletics. You know, and I did a 16-mile road race, the Boston Prep 16-miler um, on Sunday, and today's Wednesday, right? So could that have an impact, right? Am I really recovered from that? And I was like, well, it doesn't matter because the lactate is going to start accumulating at where it's going to accumulate. And you see when I align it with that past data, which was taken at different points, It's always happening at, you know, within a few tenths, approximately that same zone of about, you know, 1 to 1.6 millimoles of lactate. And then, you know, I said, well, is that impacting heart rate? Because a lot of times in the past, I've exhibited a much higher heart rate. You know, and to that regard, I said, well, it could be fatigue from the race. It could be just sort of, you know, totally meaningless Um, And then another thought that I have, and this is a hypothesis, which maybe could be unlikely, and I acknowledge that, but, you know, this is the most consistent I've been able to be with, you know, um, squatting and deadlifting in quite a while, and I'm wondering if, well, maybe I'm getting the benefit of that in that it's just cardiovascularly less intensive to do that work. Now it's not raising my FTP, but is it going to raise the possibility of what I might be able to do for a you know maximum sixty minute effort right now? An FTP is not lactate threshold. okay? They're not the same thing at all, despite the way we use these terms. So one way to sort of test this hypothesis would be to retest number one and see do I still exhibit the significantly lower heart rate at these millimoles? And you know, does that offer any kind of support for this theory that increasing my strength training has made producing these um, watts at these these levels just way more comfortable? And then I think the other thing to try to look at, if you want to verify this, is to say, well, I see a rapid adjustment. Um, or really fitness improvement, I guess, not really an adjustment, a fitness improvement if I start working on these lactate threshold levels based on the perspective and understanding they have right now. And I think a broader concept that comes out of this is that these Norwegian athletes, Ingebrigtsen, Gustav, Christian, um, the you know triathletes from Bergen, um, and then these Kenyan athletes that Marius is referencing in his writing, they aren't training the way that we think, okay? They're not doing what our parroted narrative makes us imagine, right? And then that's further complicated by the discipline narrative and the sense that we just must be in conflict with pain. And that's just, I think all this is showing that's a total myth. And this is a rhetorical issue. We aren't speaking clearly about this stuff. I also think there's some obfuscation and gamesmanship going on at the high level, some sort of like, you know, fog of war type behavior where the representation about LT and training zones is ambiguous at best. And I think that's slightly intentional. Um, You can't really get the sense or reach this conclusion from watching what these different athletes are doing on YouTube, right? And trying to like really puzzle through that. You're not Gonna get anywhere? Or at least I didn't. Um, and if you can see see through that, then you know, genuinely, you know, kudos to you. I that's not how I made this connection. I think also about how those workouts that I designed based on the data that I thought I was using correctly from the WAC tape meter um, in two thousand and nineteen in that winter, how they were successful for me. I could execute them like fifty percent, maybe two thirds of the time at best. And now what I'm thinking is that, well, I was going off of the wattage that associated with two millimoles of lactate on whatever the most recent step test I had done. And I think the reality is when I would go to do those workouts at that wattage that I was prescribing for myself, some days maybe I was fresher or I was feeling stronger. And so maybe I was producing those watts at, you know, one6 millimoles. And then other days I would be over that. And then I would be failing, right? And I think that the reason for that, you know, failure, and I started to have more difficulty as I went along, and I think I started to lose some of that just sort of initial excitement. And so whatever that adrenal response started to decline. Um, and I've said how I at one point, I did a, a third test. And I was like, Oh, my levels are going up, this is great. And so then I bumped up my levels in the workout. And the workout I tried to do was just such an abysmal failure that it just totally turned me off from that. And one of the other interesting points that Marius mentions in that practical guide write-up is he says that, you know, training too close to the four millimole is like very heavily associated with overtraining, right? Which I think we could think of as analogous to like people being like, I'm not doing this anymore. This sucks. I quit. So I think the reality here, if we're going to simplify is that my data is showing that my lactate threshold is one point let's just you know use a single number is one and a half millimoles. Okay. And that's totally different from taking four millimoles, looking at what the wattage that aligns to that is, and then setting all of this these numbers off of um that, you know, hypothetical FTP. So What I'm going to do next is, you know, I suggested that, you know, we don't really understand what these Norwegians are doing or I guess supposedly by, you know, inference what the Kenyans, these Kenyans are doing, at least the Kenyan athletes that Marius is referring to, although he doesn't seem to mention any by name per se. So I think what they're doing is actual specificity and this isn't in the sense of, you know, pace of the race. We've talked historically on the podcast about how emulating the pace or the intensity of the race was sort of the origin of the idea of specificity in training practice. Now, race intensity is a is a cognitive issue or a, a central governor issue, but it's not a core limiter to performance, I don't think. And I haven't tested lactate in racing, but I can tell you with almost absolute intuitive certainty that I'm racing way the hell over my lactate threshold numbers. When I did that Boston prep 16 miler, I was not running around at 1.6 millimole. I am 100% confident of that. So I'm not displacing this notion that there's a disconnect between this sort of functional level um, of racing versus the functional level of training. And you know, part of that is. You know, LT isn't something that I can do for, quote, an hour. And Jack Daniels says, well, you can do that for an hour in that little video I referenced. But then another resource I'm looking at is saying that, oh, no, lactate threshold, you know, is your aerobic threshold, and and that's something you can do for about three hours. Well, I could feel I can do that for about four or five hours, to be honest. And I've done it on the trainer. Last February, I did a three-hour and 45-minute training ride, um, which... For power reference, I normalized 229 watts with a heart rate of 157. And it was a very much a steady state uh, ride. Um, so the normalized power was within three watts of the average power. So maybe not even a point of making the distinction there. But, um, and I would say that, you know, that was at my lactate threshold exertion at the time. And it was certainly consistent, you know, with the heart rate data I had today, which suggested a heart rate of around, you know, one fifty seven to one sixty for that. Now, I'm not an elite athlete; it's not like I am going out and performing at this incredible aberrational level of capacity. So I think it's bullshit to say that the lactate threshold is tied to a sixty minute duration. It may be the case that four millimoles. Um, that anaerobic threshold or ventilatory threshold too, right? Again, right? we're wading back into the all of these different terms that are designed to maybe mean the same thing. Um, but like maybe that's tied to an hour. But FTP is not lactate threshold. So why is there so much confusion about this stuff? Why does it work out like this? Well, I think number one, there's a persistent sense that you need to suffer And people want to be perceived as suffering because I think that's a part of this sort of like status or this sort of like weird caste system of endurance sports that you see the high achievers and you're like, well, they're special people because they can handle pain that I can't handle. And I think this is tied to number two, the discipline mindset. And I think the discipline mindset doesn't really make space for the notion that training at levels that are... You know, comfortable or even enjoyable could possibly be productive. And, you know, Jack Daniels is saying in his little video that, well, the threshold is comfortably hard. I think it's just comfortable. You know, in some sense, it, you know, might make you tired after a while, but it's just comfortable. I think it's sort of like this super stimulating place to be in. It's like, you know, if there's any place that's being in, you know, the, in the peach, in the James and James's giant peach, I think it would be, Probably at this state, you know, where you're really in an interesting balance between, you know, the level of challenge and, and your level of skill. Uh, but I don't think that we make space to really identify that because we don't have a reflective culture around how we train. And I think three is, is just the race pace training concept. And you see this in terms of people training in running races, training at their race pace, um, be that goal pace. Or their you know current pace, their date pace. Um, you see V dot right as an exemplar of that. Um, you see people talking about training you know on the bike or on the run at their seventy point three triathlon pace or their Ironman Man distance pace, right? So I think those are all limiting factors. Okay, so what's actually happening, or what should actually be happening? So if we take Steven Seiler's polarized model. Okay. That's reaching the conclusion through observation that most of the successful, the most successful uh, endurance athletes at the high level of the sport are doing about 80% of their training below the lactate threshold. And 20% is being done at or above that threshold that we might commonly associate with um, FTP. And another way to differentiate these is to call the lactate threshold ventilatory threshold one and that FTP or that anaerobic threshold ventilatory threshold two. However, a lot of people are trying to do their development, say two by 20 minutes, at their four millimole value or their FTP or that ventilatory threshold two. And I think that's what the FTP tests are creating for people is it's creating a reference point for that. And as you're seeing this idea of in like in a seven zone model of like, okay, well, zone four training, two by 20 minutes at zone four. And it's just not really possible. And I think it's interesting that people can go out and do that because I think it says something about, you know, in a given context, how much higher um, above that lactate threshold can we work? And I think the answer is quite a bit. Um, But like the other problem here isn't just that, you know, the FTP is just an unreasonable value, but it's that the LT number isn't standardized, okay? It's different, and you can't know unless you test it, you know? And there's a significant difference between, for me, being at 2.2 millimole and being at 1.6. You know, one you go up a little bit, and the sustainability factor of what you're doing changes dramatically. And so that means... You know, for me, four millimole is overreaching. And that's not just me. It's Steven Seiler gives that example in one of his YouTube videos, again, of those cross-country skiers who are hitting their lactate threshold at like 0.6 or 0.8 millimole. Well, they for, ask them to go and do something at four millimole would be idiotic. And I think the elite athletes have access to the support about this stuff. But they may not understand as much about it. And they probably are capable of understanding more, but there's just no incentive because people are managing that, you know, cognitive space. Um, and it doesn't matter what your watts are at that level. You know, that will be like saying, you know, this is my personal best. You know, that would be, that would be really all the value of of that um, in that context. Uh, it's a huge limitation a V dot or any velocity-based training model at all, or even a power-based training model. And I think the Norwegians and anybody applying this correctly, what they're doing is they're figuring out where their ventilatory threshold one, which equals lactate threshold. And regardless of what that number is, they're then teaching themselves to train at that intensity. Okay. And that means power meters then are vastly overrated. They're useless tools except to measure progress over time. They're not even that helpful for pacing, really, at the end of the day, because you have it's more important that you know how you're feeling, because from one day to the next, those watts could be totally unsustainable. I think anybody who's tried to train with a power meter has had that experience of failure and unpredictable failure. And I know this is true because I see this on people's Strava all the time, that they're trying to do training based on power and it's impossible. And... You know, think about this. A lactate plus is currently about $312. And that's way more helpful for you um, if you understand what we're talking about here now by this point in the podcast episode. That's way more helpful than a power meter, which could easily cost three or four times that much, right? You could easily spend $1,200 on a power meter and you're going to get fractional, I'm suggesting fractional value. I think power meters can be fun, right? There's something to be said for being able to see those kinds of that kind of information, you know, like knowing what personal best is, but, you know, knowing what that is doesn't necessarily tell you how to train, okay, despite what all of the training models seem to suggest. It it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. I think the failure rate within those models in terms of athletes not being able to execute workouts is extremely high, and I think it's because we don't understand what threshold is, and I think it's because a lot of people programming training for athletes do not know what they're talking about. And I say that in the nicest possible way as somebody who, you know, genuinely thinks that a part of the fun about sports is figuring this stuff out more and more over time. And even heart rate isn't going to be consistent. Like today, my heart rate was very low at lactate threshold. But I have all this other evidence that suggests that, you know, in practice and other testing, my heart rate would be much higher. So both my watts and my heart rate at lactate threshold could vary. But what matters the most, then, is the perceived exertion. That's more reliable than these other metrics. If you know what you're looking for in terms of the sensation, you're going to way more accurately be able to figure that out. Another problem here, and this is circling back to some extent to something I talked about earlier, but is the elite athlete bias. The belief that only the special people can be outside of, you know, the, you know your max heart rate is... 220 minus your age. Well, my max heart rate running is about 213 and my max heart rate on the bike is about 204 to 205 ish. So, you know, by that standard, then I must be somewhere between seven and 15 years old, which, uh, as it just so happens, I'm not right. So those models and those formulas. And the idea that, well, this is kind of where it is, that might be useful for the discussion of the concept and to facilitate conversation and work towards higher levels of understanding to some degree, but they're not helpful. And you can take something that maybe has a lot of potential, try to implement it, it's going to fail, and then it just becomes an argument against that intervention. But I also think that there's not really an overwhelming incentive for people who are coaching elite athletes Um, or for the elite athletes themselves to really aggressively try to disseminate this knowledge. And to be fair, I think probably a majority of elite athletes aren't doing this. You kind of look at, you know, and this is kind of that, you know, historian in me looking for those primary sources. But if you look at the Lionel Sanders videos from Leaning Up to Kona, and you look at some of the sort of like comments, the sort of sneaky comments that, you know, like, um, for example, Gustav is Making right, and they're talking about you know how you know the professionals aren't professionals and and whatever, and they don't really know what they're doing, and you know I think what it is is they're like, well, we have this like level of understanding about this that nobody else really gets, and I really think genuinely that's where most of us are. I think there's an extremely small group of people who are sort of onto this and are implementing this, so what does this mean in practice? Well, it means you need to get a lactate meter. It means you need to perform a test where you increase intensity at fixed durations of maybe three minutes or four minutes. You could do this running by, you know, running 800 meter or 1000 meter or 1200 meter intervals, stopping for 10 seconds, have somebody test and then do another interval and, and progress your tempo. And the point is not to see what is the speed that you can reach before it goes up. I mean, that's a sign of fitness, but it's really to say, okay, what point of millimole does the lactate steady state end? At what point does it start to accumulate? Because that is telling you the intensity that's going to be productive. And so that means when we're saying, you know, and I'm not now promoting polarized training, but I think it's an easy concept um, to sort of reference here to make the point that we're really trying to make. You know, when we're saying 80% of the training is, quote, quotes, easy, well, 80% of the training is at intensities at or below lactate threshold. And if you actually know what your lactate threshold is, you realize it's not hard and specific, it's challenging in aggregate, partly because then it opens the door to doing a lot more training. And when people are doing, you know, double workouts in a day and they're doing it at lactate threshold, you realize like, whoa, okay, it's possible because it's not as hard as I think workouts should be. And the average person out there absolutely destroying themselves in workouts, totally unproductive. Um, You could argue too that is this sort of what the Arthur Lydiard guys figured out in a way. Right, in their own intuitive sense, you know, and and is this what these Kenyan athletes are are doing too? Is that there's different methods to learn, and that if this is really fundamentally effective, then it makes sense that a variety of people at different times in different contexts could arrive at the same conclusion using a totally different set of language or ideas. But we're not able to, you know, for example, we can't, you know, go back in time and test those people lactate thresholds. So from a scientific standpoint, it would maybe be considered invalid to reach that conclusion. But from a historical standpoint, you know, it's totally valid to, you know, make the assertion that there's that probable commonality there. So in practice, what that means is you want to design your workouts, you know, to be based on doing that, because that's what's going to allow you to go faster. Because you're going to work at that specific state. That is the point of specificity, right? That is sort of the peak of all of those aerobic, good aerobic characteristics. And you work at that and you work at that. And then over the long term, the velocities that you can hit while staying at that low lactate level, at that steady state of lactate. The reason why it's called a steady state is because for each progressive step of wattage or velocity of work, you are not producing more lactate. And then when you find the point in which you go that one step further and it starts to produce, well, then you go back to that step before that. And then that's where you want to be. And then that over time, you know, will develop and evolve. And I think that's where learning how to train intuitively is so important. And I think that's what's in common, is in common here in all these instances. And that's what Marius's practical guide write up is saying is that. You know the goal isn't necessarily to just constantly test the lactate, but it's to use this to sort of train ourselves, you know, like tying your shoes, to just sort of recognize what you need to do and be able to go to that space when we need to be there. So what can we conclude here? Overwhelmingly people aren't using this terminology correctly. And this is probably not the only context in which this is true, but the implications of this is really profound. That parroting is really watering down and producing so much white noise that we can't understand what's going on. Number two, people are trying to train or implement models of training at tested or measured intensities that are way too high for the modeled sessions and they're failing repeatedly. And that... Number three, there is a group of elite athletes in endurance sports across a variety of disciplines who have identified this and have a really strong understanding of it and are putting it into place. And this idea really isn't being transferred out on a large scale. Okay, And so if you can take this and you can apply this, I think you're going to see a big difference. And I'm going to be continuing to experiment with this, in particular focusing in on this different perspective of what my lactate threshold is, and not worrying about the watts or not worrying about the pace, but just sort of buying into that. Number four, I think this is really ties, tying in very well to what we've been talking about on the podcast about feeling good, about finding that space that works for us, and the idea that the recommended or the specific threshold isn't correct. right? If you think about what we're saying here, doesn't this offer some real validity, right, some evidence to support that. And I think overall, there's this fear sometimes among athletes that if they tell people what they're doing that works, then other people will use that knowledge to gain advantage. However, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the black cats run podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes, you can check us out on Instagram at black cats run. Send us a message. Let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned for Friday. Part four B of win Nats. We'll be releasing. We have some other great content in the works that will be coming out over the next few weeks. More series episode installments more top secret guests episodes from our two new series on the couch and big ring bennett i hope that you find those interesting And if you uh, do and your stuff in here you find thought provoking uh we'd love for you to reach out and share that with other folks who you think might be similarly inclined thanks for checking out the podcast today you. <laughs>